Welcome to Love, Lead, Listen, a podcast from Alpha Gamma Delta and generously funded by the Alpha Gamma Delta Foundation. Join us as we discuss topics that affect women of today and examine the ways that we can be women with purpose. Hello, and welcome back to Love, Lead, Listen. Today's guest is Dr. Daryl Appleton and Jennifer Weaver-Breitenbacher from Polaris Counseling and Consulting. Polaris was founded by Daryl and Jen, who are two friends from graduate school who bonded over wit, wisdom, and a mutual respect of a good PowerPoint. With more than 15 years of field experience, Daryl and Jen built Polaris after identifying a need for 360-degree individualized care in an environment of security, luxury, and comfort. Nationally known as experts in the field of mental health, Daryl and Jen have appeared in local and international news outlets. They specialize in a range of life coaching, psychological needs around anxiety and depression, and working with teams with an intense focus on reaching goals and directives towards overall well-being and self-actualization. If you've been a listener of Love Lead Listen, you've probably heard them before on their separate episodes, but today they're together. Daryl and Jen, welcome. Thank you for having us. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for having us together. That was exciting when you just said that. I know, this is exciting. I'm excited. I'm so excited. I feel like we... We've had you both individual, but I feel like I normally am like seeing on impact talks and all of our webinars typically together. So this is like full circle almost. (laughs) We are usually together. So this is this is nice. The band is back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, today I'm really wanting to talk to you about a topic that we uh, had you cover at ACO or Academy for Chapter Officers a bit. But I want to dive in a little bit more. And that topic is imposter syndrome. Can you start off by telling me just what imposter syndrome is? I feel like we hear it a lot, but just for so everyone's on the same page here. Yeah, imposter syndrome. I think, you know, when we're talking about at the depths of imposter syndrome, it's somebody is going to walk into my office one day, kick the door down, find out that I am a complete and utter fraud at what I did or what what I'm doing in my job and drag me out of here because they know I'm not capable of it. And I think we've all had this on some level of, oh my God, what if they find out I have no idea what I'm doing? And it's this insecurity we all foster in us, especially if we're in a new job or we just get promoted to a leadership position, uh, if we're out of our comfort zone. So I think it's something that, you know, First, we need to understand is fairly ubiquitous. I think the statistic that we gave at Academy that over 75% of women specifically feel um, feelings of imposter syndrome, especially in positions of leadership. So it is it is stuff that we see a lot. And it begins with this, these rules of like, I should do this, or I always do this, or I never do this. And it, it really shapes our experience and our expectations on on that type of stuff. So it's uh it's a it's a big one. You say that a lot of it comes from like these shoulds and these expectations. Where do those come from? Where what's teaching us to like have these expectations that are kind of toxic to ourselves? I think we've seen an increase in sort of the era of social media, right? I think we're having a lot of comparisons with not only people that maybe, you know, 20 years ago, we would compare with people in our immediate environment. I think now we're comparing with people who live all over the country, and we're sort of inundated with that information. So I think there's this constant comparison, there's this constant drive to be better, 
there's this term boss babes, this idea that like, we're all supposed to like take over the world. And I think on top of that, I think, I know we're not speaking exclusively to women, but I think when we are speaking about women, women are socialized to compete. We are socialized to not cheer each other on. We are socialized to do better than to be ahead of. So I think not only is there social, this social media component, I think there's this socialization piece where we're, we're telling people we're in constant competition. We're in constant comparison and someone, you know, I'm air quoting right now, someone's going to figure you out. And, and the reality is there's probably not much to figure out, but we all live with that fear. I also think too, there's, and Jen, I completely agree. I think you're a hundred percent right. If you wanted to dive a little bit more into the shoulds and the always and the nevers, you can look at some of Carol Dweck's work in uh, mindset. And a lot of times how we were raised even can potentially impact how we feel about shoulds, always, nevers. And if we were raised with parents or people, guardians, people around us who praised us on our, uh, our accolades or on our ability rather than our process, how we figure things out, the way that we manage failure. We, we see success and failure as very binary. I either am a success or I am a failure and there is no in-between. So it can have this very this big range. And I think what compounds it, especially for women, is exactly what Jen said, is on top of all of that, you have this socialization factor and you have women competing so what what starts to happen is a little bit of a perfect storm and nobody teaches us what to do with it or we've only recently started talking about it in in this capacity and I know that it's come out I think in the 70s imposter syndrome is is when it kind of all started but it's nice to know that more women are supporting women and and men and people figuring this out so we don't have to feel this way Absolutely and you said that 75% of women experience imposter syndrome or will that's just that seems like such a huge number to me that's like thinking through like the women I know in my life is like 75% of them like that's a huge amount of women yes <laughs> that is well, even then I would say like I want to talk to these other 25% I want to I want to know their secret what are y'all doing <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly so why we talked about this a little bit, specifically women are feeling this over men, which is, I'm sure has a lot of societal reasoning. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I, we talked about the competitiveness and the comparing yourself to others, but why so many women compared to men? I, my, my initial take is, you know, if we sort of look at how we talk to girls and how we talk to boys when we're raising them, right? Boys are not all the time, but traditionally socialized to feel okay putting themselves first, to feel okay talking about their accomplishments, to feel okay accepting accolades without making um, a justification for it. Um, girls are often socialized to, um, you know, make a justification when given a compliment. Um, for example, if someone says, I love your dress saying, Oh, do you, or I've had this forever or yeah, it's okay. You know, girls tend to be socialized that way. They, they tend to be told that it's, it's not a good look to talk about your accomplishments. 
Um, and that, you know, in, in many roles in women's lives, they're expected to not put themselves first. So I think we're certainly not suggesting that men don't experience this. We see this in therapy all the time. I think we are seeing that girls are, are being raised to not put themselves in those positions where they're allowed to feel good about those things. I think it's also infiltrated into the workplace. And I think we can have this conversation without talking about implicit bias or fixing bias and not just fixing women or fixing people with imposter syndrome. So I think, you know, what Jen's saying absolutely trickles into a culture of sometimes people treating other people differently based on what they think that they're capable of. And that might be true. It might be not true. But sometimes like if we interpret this as I'm being treated differently, we get defensive or our guards come up or we start to self-doubt. It's our job as human beings to figure out those those you know um, feelings within us. So, and that's what Jen and I do on on a fairly regular basis. It's okay. How do we make ourselves accountable a little bit more to fixing this? Because the system's not going to fix it for you, and it shouldn't necessarily even be on the system to fix it for you specifically. The system needs to fix it for the system. So it's still our responsibility, even though that we're feeling these feelings, to take ownership of them and to to do something about them, regardless of the bias, even though it is very present. So another thing I'm curious about, and you talked about this in the ACO presentation, but we experience imposter syndrome differently. It's not just like one blanket experience. Can you tell me a little bit about the different ways that we tend to see this play out in our lives? Yeah. Jen and I, when we were putting together this imposter syndrome um, lecture, we kind of saw that there were different types of imposter syndrome. And beyond that, more defenses, imposter syndrome defenses, so how we feel about our imposter syndrome. So we found that there was the perfectionist, which is fairly self-explanatory, the superhero who feels like they need to kind of step in and do it all, the expert that needs to... (laughs) that needs to know it all, that needs to like acquire knowledge because they don't want to ever feel like they don't know something. This natural genius that, you know, uh, is very good at what they do, but anything beyond their scope of understanding, sometimes they feel like they they break down. And then the soloist of isolating and working on themselves, working uh, by themselves uh, makes them feel a little bit better because the team makes them feel a little bit uncomfortable. But we did see that these defense mechanisms do have different characteristics. And we talked a lot about how to have a new narrative around each, which was really cool for Jen and I to put together and very cool to present. And we got such great feedback about it because not we don't necessarily always talk about it as something that we experience differently. So I, I think it's important to know it, it looks different to different people as well. And I think seeing it along more of a spectrum can help normalize it. I think it's interesting because people will reach out to us and say, I'm feeling this way or I'm feeling that way. And, and sometimes I'll follow that up with, that sounds like you're experiencing imposter syndrome. And they'll say, well, no, but actually what they're doing is defining one of these types um, that maybe they weren't aware, you know, as, as Daryl said, it can look very different. And I think it's not necessarily that we're out here to label people. It's that when we provide a label for someone, there's a normalization process that happens and this ability to then understand sort of what's going on with me and where, where do I take that and what do I do with it? So I think being able to say, like, if you look at the immediate definition of imposter syndrome, if you were to Google it, 
sure, maybe that doesn't sound like me, but that doesn't mean I'm not experiencing it in a different way. And I love what you said about like the labeling piece. It's important for us to label our feelings because if we don't label them, they just are things we are experiencing. So in order to understand anxiety, first we need to label it as anxiety and not frustration or not embarrassment because then we can do something about it. So while labeling feels really awful and terrible, I think psychologically, it's important for us to name our feelings so that we can navigate them. And imposter syndrome is is no different. And I think labeling has gotten a bad rap, right? Like there are just certain things about us that are intrinsic truths. Uh, I'm 5'9". I'll always be 5'9". Um, that's true. Um, I'm a brunette. I will always, you know, I can dye my hair, but at its core, I'll always be a brunette. I, I, I think there's just, for whatever reason, labels have gotten a really bad rap and there might be some people listening to this who work in the medical community and they know that there's a movement in the medical community away from labels, but there's also value to them because I think labeling our emotions, like Daryl just said, helps us understand them. Labeling our symptoms helps us understand them. Labeling our experiences helps us understand them. And, and in order to move forward from anything, we first need to understand it. And to, to your point, and I love that you said that, healthy labels are, are a real thing. Once you label something, you can say, I have diabetes. This is my label. This is my diagnosis. You cannot continue to eat cake and expect that just because you have labeled it, it goes away. Right, it's not, right. <laughs> it doesn't clear up because the label had it. The work also comes with it. So it's not even just about the label. The label helps give us a direction. And when I say us, I mean as individuals and as practitioners, us a direction to help move forward into fixing a problem or understanding a problem differently or gaining coping skills, whatever it is. So it's not even just about the labeling. It's a step further than that. Like, A, we need a label and B, we need to do something about it. It's almost like the label gives you the guidebook of like, okay, you have you know where to look in the library for the directions to fix this. Right. That's actually a perfect analogy. Um, I drive a Volvo, but if I didn't know it was called a Volvo, um, I might be reading the um, driver's manual for a Honda and that would not help me. So I think like, you're right. Labeling, it gives you the book to look at. And I think that's, that's kind of where we're going with that. I love in my mind when Emily said that, I thought Dewey Decimal System. And I was like, well, that is amazing because we don't talk about the Dewey Decimal System enough. So <laughs> no, but I feel like I should share with you that whenever someone says the Dewey Decimal System, I can smell it. I don't know if that makes any sense to anyone, but I can smell the Dewey Decimal System. Just throwing that out there. Does make sense. It, I, I absolutely know what you're talking about right now. Like. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. I'm go get us back on track. Us back on track. <laughs> well, when we look at when we have this label, when we look at, you know, what do we do from there? What are some techniques that people should be aware of or look at pursuing if they say, "Oh, I'm like really identifying with this. I'm really feeling this imposter syndrome." What what do they do? Where what's their guidebook here? Something I used yesterday, I was actually talking to a woman about imposter syndrome yesterday, and I am a huge proponent of feelings are not facts. What are the facts? So for example, someone hired you, unless you lied on your resume egregiously, right? I'm sure we all bolster our resume a bit. But if you egregiously lied on your resume, or let's, for example, this woman I was speaking to yesterday happened to mention her age, 
she's in her early 20s. And she said, you know, the women I work with are older. And I said, right, but did you lie about your age at your interview? And she said, no. And I said, right, someone hired you knowing your age, your experience, what you bring to the table. So the fact is that someone believed that you could take on the position enough to put you in that position. Another fact is, what's your employee evaluation look like? Are you getting negative feedback from your supervisor? Or are you just saying, I'm not getting positive feedback, so I assume they don't like me? Okay, maybe they don't like you, but we also don't know that. So I think feelings versus facts can be a huge tool when we're talking about imposter syndrome. If you're getting feedback that you are terrible at your job, Maybe you are an imposter. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> is it really imposter syndrome? Maybe you are in the wrong career. I agree. I think accountability again is a huge piece of. Uh, Jen and I are not light and fluffy people. We're not light and fluffy therapists, so we do need to mention accountability here is real. If you are getting negative review after negative review, I agree wholeheartedly with Jen. You may be the imposter, like in Scooby Doo, and you will be unmasked. Um, I think I love the facts versus feelings, and Jen uses it all the time, and I steal it and I use it as well. I think the other thing to potentially um, look at or have as a tool is understanding and recognizing the narrative. I'm a really big believer in the stories that we tell ourselves matter. So, understanding who is speaking and this feels slightly bizarre to say but understand like which of your personalities is speaking right now i tell all of my clients and it makes me sound like kind of a nut but you have this bus in your head and it's filled with all of your personalities and this is like your inner child this is like your boss babe this is your imposter syndrome um chick whatever your doomsday prepper that i imagine just like wearing like a robe and has lots of cats on her. Uh, like all of them, they're there. One person drives at a time. If you can identify who is driving, you are better, you are more likely and you're better able to switch it out with a more capable driver for the route ahead. That to me is recognizing the narrative and reframing the story. Asking yourself, which part of me is talking right now? Is this a hurt part of me that comes from my parents or being bullied or an experience that was that I failed, quote unquote, air quotes, failed at. And once you can talk back to yourself, like truly the second part of your life begins. Like once you can understand like you are in charge of your story, it's so incredibly powerful. And it really starts with understanding facts versus feelings and understanding where it's coming from. Well, and it's funny because that kind of goes back to labels, right? This idea mm -hmm. of you can label who is currently driving your bus, right? If you have a child driving your bus, the ride is not going to be smooth. We know that. So I love that analogy because I think sometimes when we say to patients, like, listen, that's your inner child speaking. I need you to tell them to shut up real quick. Mm -hmm. And I need you to use, you know, your more confident college self, the, the version of you in college that like thought you were just like immortal, I, I need that woman to speak right now. And people can tap into that, right? Even if they're not feeling that way, they can sort of go back to that memory of that time. They can pull that person forward and they can kind of tell you what they would say. So I think, again, being able to label like, where is this coming from and who is saying this to you in, in your own internal dialogue can be incredibly helpful. What really kind of stuck with me is early on, you said, if you're getting, are you getting good reviews or... Are you getting reviews that are like, okay, like, are they actively saying that like you need 
improvement. And to me, I think a lot of times if we're not getting that, like, you're doing great, you're doing amazing. Sometimes we write our own narrative in there of like, oh, I'm middle, I got like an okay review. I must be doing awful and they won't tell me. It's like almost like a someone else is driving that bus to a road it does not need to be on. Well, and I also think knowing who that is. So for example, if you have a supervisor who is not superfluous with positive feedback towards anyone, you expecting positive feedback from that supervisor may be an unrealistic expectation. We need to not expect fish to climb trees, right? So I I think if you're sitting in a meeting and you're like, no, they give positive feedback to everyone, except I never receive any, then that's a different fact. That's data, right? And I think at that point, as a therapist, I would say, okay, why don't you schedule a meeting with your supervisor and ask if there's something you can do to improve, get more data, get more information. But I think, yes, we know positive praise in the workforce is important. We also know it's not seen everywhere. So sometimes it's really about looking about who's driving this bus at work, right? And are they someone who's doling out the praise or are they not? And if they're not, maybe my expecting it is setting me up for disappointment when I'm sort of speculating something that's not there. And I also think, too, there's there's something to be said about love languages, right? There are love languages in the workplace as well. And words of affirmation is a very real love language in romantic relationships. It's a very real love language in professional relationships. Obviously, they're slightly different. But you should also know what makes you feel good. And again, it does not mean everyone needs to acquiesce and bend to your will and give you what you need. But it is understanding like, ooh, I do really well when I get positive feedback or when I get feedback. And to Jen's point, that's a conversation to have with your manager. Again, labeling what it is that you need and what you want, you are better to you are better able to advocate for yourself. If you don't need that and it's something entirely different, then again, like what do you need? And Jen and I ask these questions all the time in coaching and in therapy. Okay, what do you need then? And we don't necessarily always ask ourselves like those tough questions. We usually tend to say this person needs to do this better. But I think it's incredibly empowering to ask ourselves like, what do I need and how do I get what I need in a way that is healthy and professional and not toxic? Because it's just going to help you understand yourself better at the end of the day. Well, also, I think, you know, we, we talk about this in therapy a lot, this concept of how dangerous mind reading is. Expecting people around us to read our minds, um, unless you truly are part of a coven in which people can actually read your thoughts, um, I think, again, you're potentially setting yourself up for this massive disappointment. Yes, by coincidence, will some people meet your needs and figure it kind of out? Sure. Statistically, that's not going to happen all that all that often. So I think Daryl's right. We need to ask ourselves, like, what do I need? And how do I achieve that? How do I get that in the workplace? And, you know, if it's a realistic ask, you can absolutely bring that to your supervisor. If it's an unrealistic ask, and, you know, let's say, for example, if you're working and coaching with Daryl or I, we will easily say, like, that seems kind of unrealistic, particularly at work. How can we get that need met for you in a way in which that doesn't come from your supervisor, per se? Right. I love that. I love just how we've kind of brought it together of it's not just always getting the help or it's not just the stories you're always telling yourself. You have to look at the external factors and what are the facts like you're saying versus the feelings. So I feel like that would be incredibly helpful if you're suffering or you're going through imposter syndrome and trying to figure out what 
what is what are the facts of your workplace right now or just your life in general? Right. And you can apply that to anything. We talk about that in relationships too. People will say like, I don't think my friends like me anymore. Okay. Why? Why do you think your friend? Well, I haven't seen them in a year. Fair. Neither have I. Uh, so I think sometimes it's about saying like, let's really sort of break down why we are creating the narratives we are. And, you know, like Daryl said, if your inner child got bullied or picked on a lot, you may as an adult have a proclivity to assume people don't like you. Um, that doesn't mean that's true. And if the answer is it is true, if people truly don't like you, going back to what Daryl said about accountability, if you are the common denominator, my friend, we have to figure out why you are the common denominator when it comes to people not liking you. Right. So I would argue that this imposter syndrome, it's so much more complex and it's got so many different layers to it. And if you're truly, if you're listening out there and you truly are, are feeling it, unpack it with somebody who, who is qualified first, but also like, you know, can help that you trust and that can guide you in a direction. Cause I think there's so much to be gained about self-understanding by feeling a negative feeling. We shouldn't run from feeling negative feelings. We should lean into it and have our supports and, and, you know, you know, bolster ourselves uh, to, to get ready for that fight. Because again, like, I think when we're talking about empowerment, when we're talking about ways to combat imposter syndrome, it really truly is learning about self. And that is in a full capacity. And to Jen's point before, you might be in a place that genuinely does not value you and you need to go where you're celebrated and not, and not tolerated. So you could very well, after doing all of this inside work and getting to the depths of it, just be in a super top, toxic work environment. I, and I'm speaking for Jen at this point, both of us would very much probably want you to leave a toxic environment after you have identified that that is actually what it is rather than just pointing a finger or blaming it or not really knowing and just kind of moving on to the next job and potentially feeling this all over again somewhere else. There's just more than to unpack later on. Well, we're at the point in our podcast where I like to ask all of our guests this one question. You've both of it have answered it before. So I'm curious, what is your purpose? I'm going to speak for both of us and Jen, like, I'm going to speak for Polaris, like as our, because I have no idea what my answer was going to be. So go for it. Emily always gets us on this, like, you know, very uh, existential journey here at the end, which I love. I think for, for Jen and I, the reason we got together from my vantage point, the, the reason I love Jen and the reason that, that uh, we click is because we challenge each other. And I think this purpose that we have as business owners and as mental health, uh, you know, uh, private practice owners is to challenge ourselves to continue to grow so we can challenge our clients to continue to grow. And having somebody in my corner, at least that pushes me and constantly challenges me in a way that I need. And she has listened to the feedback that I have given her about what I need and hopefully vice versa for her as well. I think that that has been part of this journey and the purpose of, of our professional lives together is to figure out who we are at a depth so we can meet other people that come to us and help them reach different depths in their own life. That was incredibly well said. I think the reason I love Daryl is when I don't know the answer to a question, she can answer it for me. Um, To to go off of what she said, I I think this concept of we would be remiss to think that the day we walked out of school, we knew all we needed to know to help other people. I think 
there's truly something to be said about if you are going to help other other people in some capacity, whether it is therapy, coaching, or any other capacity in your life, you need to know you. You need to continue to grow. You need to continue to develop and learn. So I think, you know, part of when I look at purpose, it's not only to work with other people, but it's to become a better individual myself to grow, to become a stronger person so that I can continue to do that. Well, if our listeners want more of y'all, where should they go? They should head over to www.polarisri.com. Polaris is, we weren't, we named ourselves after the North Star, Polaris. You can also find us on Instagram. I am at Dr. Daryl Appleton. Jen is at JL Weaver LLC. But please, if you have questions or if we can explain anything further or give you resources, we love to do that. So please DM us, email us. Our information's out there. Um, we want to hear your stories. We want to hear what you need and need more of, especially um, if we can do it with Alpha Gam because we're always looking for new topics for impact talks and ways to help. So we, we love hearing from you all. So please, please reach out. I love that. And we'll have all of your contact information linked on our website, alphagamadelta.org forward slash podcast. Like always, you can also check out the impact talks Daryl and Jen have done for Alpha Gam. Those are on Acorn. Daryl, Jen, this was fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks, it's Emily. a pleasure. We adore, we adore you. We adore this. We adore Alpha Gam. Love, Lead, Listen is recorded and produced at Alpha Gamma Delta International Headquarters and is generously funded by the Alpha Gamma Delta Foundation. Episodes are released every two weeks, so make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts so you don't miss out on any of our episodes. If you like this show, make sure to rate us five stars on iTunes and don't forget to share it with your friends. If you have an idea for a future episode or any other feedback, send us an email at podcast at alphagammadelta.org.